circle. Gypsy. Crow. Hello and welcome to another 80s All Over patron episode. My name is Scott Weinberg. I am the co-host, co-creator, and uh, co- Wait. <laughs> I had nothing funny there, sorry. Uh, Got lost there. Yeah, I know. I thought I had something funny to end on the third, but I had nothing. Uh, I would like to, as always, introduce my co-host, the illustrious Drew McQueenie. Thank you. I, I had not been called illustrious until today, and I feel very, very good about it. Illustrious means you're shiny and silver. Exactly. Right? Okay. Exactly. And I've been working on that. So um, thank you, man. I am so excited because I spent a so say good we, chunk of yep. the 90s watching this gentleman's work. You and I were madly in love with Mystery Science Theater, thanks in large part to Mr. Kevin Murphy. Gentlemen. How did that get started? How did you madmen get together and create a beloved icon that people just love to this day? I know I do. I think the broadest answer to that is that um, the bunch of us lived in a town with uh, not a lot of attention drawn to it as far as TV goes. We worked at a very low-rated TV station. Uh, we had a thriving comedy community in Minneapolis at the time, and uh, all those things connected. And uh, Joel Hodgson got hooked up with Jim Mallon and I and Trace Beaulieu and uh, Josh Weinstein. And there was no reason why we couldn't do a TV show. That nobody was watching our station, and we did it. And uh, and and this the thing about just a little side story. We put an answering machine on from the first episode. Say, you guys, are if you're actually watching the show, why don't you leave us a message? Well, it was after the second show. We came back after it had aired, and the answering machine at the station was full. So we uh, knew something uh, was going on. The first way I heard about you guys in 1990 when I moved to L.A. and I ended up living with this couple who was in town. They had moved from Minneapolis. And so he had that hometown pride about Mystery Science Theater and was telling me about it before it got picked up nationally and before it sort of had broken. And it was that that feeling of this is this local thing. I swear to God, it's the greatest thing of all time. And then when I actually saw it, he was right. It was, that, oh yes, it's exactly what he described to me. And I feel like uh, because you guys started locally and because you were sort of under the radar, you were able to grow this thing organically and find your, and there was not the pressure at the beginning for it to perform a certain way. You got to figure it out. Oh, absolutely. We had very high expectations of failure. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, we were able to just simply lab test the thing however we want, wanted to. And, uh, I mean, Joel had already had a, a history with HBO and had, you know, he'd been on Saturday Night Live and he'd been on David Letterman. And then he came back home because I think it was all a bit too much for him. Um, so he'd had a taste of that. And so none of us really had the hunger to do that again at that time. We just wanted to do something that was fun and sort of like fuck around because uh, we worked at like I said, the lowest rated UHF station in the city. And I had come up there in order to do subversive television. And this seemed like the perfect model for subversive television. It was like an old hosted movie show um, where the hosts actually take over everything. What was the process of acquiring the rights? Was it actually like tracking down like a 90 year old producer and going, hey, you have the rights to this film. We'd like to use it. And here's a couple bucks. Like, what, what was the whole how did that work? We didn't We didn't care. I mean, the TV station had all these films in our library, and we just raided the library. We didn't ah. give a shit if we had any rights or not. And that's one of the reasons why none of those uh, 
episodes from KTMA have ever seen the light of day again. But as you went on and you had to get the rights from your own uh, production company, was that a tough process? That was when we were at Comedy Central, which was part of HBO Comedy Channel way back when. Mm. And that was when having uh, their lawyer and their agents um, uh, helping us out there because they had to clear the rights. We didn't have to care about that. They just We said, just start sending us every shitty film that you can get your hands on. And we started getting boxes and boxes. Of- <laughs> oh, so it was more of like, here is a large stack of what you have uh, that we can give to you for the show. <laughs> we had a wish list which came out of the library the KTMA had, which was a pretty crappy film library. You know, the thing at the time is that a local TV station, you know, could only afford so much programming and they buy it from these distributors that just kind of gave it to you as like a happy meal. If you take this, you also have to take this. And so we took all the movies that they really didn't want to screen very much and said, well, this is going to be great. You know, it's a all-star airplane disaster film, SST death flight, which is still one of my favorites. And I'd love to revisit that sometime. But did you ever get a situation where a producer or someone said, Hey, 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 this film was licensed to be screened on UHF channels, not chopped up and, and made fun of. Uh, not while we were at KTMA. When we got to uh, the network, I don't know how we did this, but we did all these films that were distributed by Sandy Frank. You know Sandy yes. Frank? <laughs> oh, yes. So Sandy Frank is, he is, you could dedicate an entire podcast to Sandy Frank. He is a piece of work. I think when he realized what we were exactly doing, he went into lawsuit mode. And that's why now when um, Shout Factory releases all the videos from Mystery Science Theater, you don't see a single Sandy Frank film in that collection. I, I know there are some people, and this is a real fracture. There are some people who look at Mystery Science Theater and they think what you guys are doing is you're mocking the movies and you're just tearing them apart. I've always looked at it as you're taking one piece of art and you're turning it into another piece of art. And maybe that first piece of art is of questionable merit. But you are doing something with it that is given it a second life. I honestly believe nobody would even remember Manos exists if you guys hadn't done the thing. And now Manos has this life and has been restored and the real film is still out there. You guys didn't ruin it. I think, if anything, you spotlit it. No, it's true. We've never broken a film. You can always go back and watch the original film <laughs> in its original form. And the film is not damaged for our doing what we have done to it, except maybe in your own perception of it. So right. Can, that's you the know, we had to it. There's this wonderful, and I don't remember what the podcast is, but Jonah Ray, who I love, um, did a podcast with Joe Dante, who long ago, he, he originally said, yeah, I kind of like what these guys do. It's kind of great. It looks kind of fun. You know, they're just making fun of all these movies. Then we made fun of a movie he loved, which was Maroon. <laughs> which was uh, directed by Frank Capra Jr. Sure. And from then on, he was just like, I hate these guys. I hope they all die of cancer. (laughs) But he did a podcast with Jonah. And Jonah really, what you just articulated is exactly what Jonah articulated. He was like, we're like the the Aristophanes of this. We are pointing out the fun flaws in these things. And we're, we're having fun with it. We constantly had debate over what we might want to include in a script, whether it was just being too cruel either to the person who was playing the role, make fun of the role, don't make fun of the person was generally our rule. It always felt like you guys had fun with tropes. You had it wasn't fun with- punching down. We didn't use that phrase back then, but it does. It never felt like you guys yeah. were punching down to movies. What's going to be funnier is what it always came down to. And that was the great thing about being in a room full of stand-up comedians and comedy writers is go for what's funny, not for what's easy. You know, in any sort of TV show, I think that's always a huge tension. 
my very favorite moments are when you guys would create a full counter narrative and their narrative and your narrative would start to feed off of each other in ways that it would just make me howl. Like there was another movie that had somehow created around this original film. And I think those are the moments where it really sings. And one of the host segments or one of the episodes with host segments that I've always held dear is when you guys did The Incredible Melting Man. And that entire episode feels like you venting about Universal and about making a feature film. And it's the funniest host segment stuff, even if you don't know any of that. And if you do, it's exponentially weirder and crazier. That's true. The times that we get really angry at a film is when you could tell that the filmmakers just simply didn't care. Yeah. (laughs) And then we'd lay into them. I had no problem with that. You know, like I have a real affection for the James Wen films, you know, for Birdemic. He had such high expectations and high hopes. And his model for making films is Alfred Hitchcock, for Christ's sake. I, I'm a film critic for 20 years, and I learned a lot watching your show when I was 19. This line right here, ready? That's right, shoot it all. <laughs> That's it. That I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't you cut here? Why would you pan across the lake for 80 seconds? You know? It's one it's of like, our favorites. You know, somebody has, somebody has flubbed a line. Is it, uh, can we go back? No, keep rolling. <laughs> well, I think both you and Joe Bob, uh, Joe Bob was another example of that, where you can just take Joe Bob Briggs's early drive-in work as comedy, but I think he's a sharp film critic, and I think I learned a lot from his attitude towards film. And same thing with you guys. I love Joe Bob. I think he is actually a very perceptive consumer of of the kind of movies he consumes. If our listeners out there are duped by his good old boy routine, Joe Bob Briggs would make a brilliant uh, film professor in any college. He's absolutely he's he's like he's like Will Rogers in that respect. Was there were there ever any films in that early stages in the nineties where you're like oh, we would love to do something from the 80s, but it's just, we're not going to, we can't, we don't have the rights to it and we wouldn't be able to get them anyway. When Rift Tracks came along, it was, ended up being sort of a magical thing because we had always wanted to be able to do studio films. It was just impossible for us to do because with very few exceptions, uh, we couldn't afford the rights to do those films because they, you know, most of the people who were in the films were still alive. And uh, so studios wouldn't let, allow us to do that. So when we came up with a way of doing an MP3, essentially a commentary track that you could play along with the film, we started having fun. But, you know, one of the odd things we fell into, particularly with 80s films, is that this was before Netflix became, you know, what Netflix is, the titan that it is. When we first started Riff Tracks, we do these commentaries on films that nobody owned. Yeah. And nobody wanted to actually even spend the money to rent the fucker. So, uh, you know, like we did a wonderful commentary on the Sylvester Sloan movie Over the Top. It's the oh, arm wrestling beautiful. film. It's one of our favorites. And it's actually the first time we went to Sketchfest. We did it at Cobb's Comedy Club. And we had so much fun doing that film. But, you know, nobody, nobody owns a copy of Over the Top. And at the time, you know, nobody wanted to spend the five bucks on or whatever on Netflix or on whatever streaming service was available at the time to actually rent a copy of Over the Top. So those films were always they always fell into like a gap. So we weren't actually able to really dive into them. But um, at Mystery of Science Theater, I remember one film that was I'm pretty sure it was 80s. It was probably early 80s called Parts the Clonus Horror. That's one that uh, Michael Bay ended up ripping off and making a new <laughs> movie out of with uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, yep, the island, the island. Yes. I mean, it's like they put on the front page of the paper. We're going to rob a bank and then they rob the bank. 
Yeah, they settled at they said they settled at a court. I still kind of enjoy the island. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's stupid. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like the original film is really stupid. It's naive and it shouldn't have been done. And you know, there were trends that we're definitely having to deal with as we review all of the films of the '80s chronologically and. Getting through all of the insane Mad Max ripoffs or getting through all of the trickled out Star Wars ripoffs, it's really an endurance oh, test the, at times. The, the Porky's ripoffs, Drew, the Porky's. So you guys would never get to do the originals. You would only ever get to do carbons of carbons of carbons. So by the time you get hold of a Mad Max ripoff, man, it is as thin as it gets. And that was fun, was you sort of pointing young viewers who didn't necessarily know all those footprints that were in these films to those movies. A lot of your commentary does a great job of seeding in those things that they can then go find for themselves later as they get older. It was. We would sort of leave a trail for people to actually find their way back to the source material. I, I love film archaeology. It's one of the reasons I like your book so much. The I've read that book more than once. I still have it on the shelf, and I really think you should do a sequel. It's called A Year at the Movies. It was really – it was a, a great year of my life. When the uh, ebook finally came out, I got to write a uh, a new introduction for it in 2012, and I realized how much had changed, and yet also how much had stayed the same. In that, you know, the movie industry is still doing this fervent sort of incest, uh, looking for stories and uh, and coming up with the same thing in a different version over and over and over again. And it's always panicked about something. There's always some new panic that the film industry is going through about what's going to kill it. The whole idea for the book was uh, inspired by a guy in the 70s who was a Madison Avenue ad exec. It's called Seven Glorious Days, Seven Fun-Filled Nights, and I highly recommend it to you. He stuck himself in his apartment with, at the time, I believe there were four channels. He had four different TVs tuned to all four channels that were available on television and had them on 24 hours a day for seven days, and he chronicled the entire experience. Wow. nuts. Was there a point, because we're halfway through right now doing 80s all over. It, it is a moment for reflection. It's a moment to take a breath, but it's also like, oh my God, there's still half of this left. <laughs> wow, what did we do? And so was there a point while you were writing the book where you ever felt like, oh my God, I really am doing 365 of these? Yeah, and, and I think it was in August of that year when, believe it or not, when blockbuster season comes around, there is a dearth of new material to watch because all there is in the movies. We've noticed that in the 80s is like some weekends you'd get seven or eight releases. That doesn't happen in anymore. We don't get seven or eight releases on a no. Friday. I mean, the films that I ended up watching many times and and sort of hating were Bridget Jones's Diary <laughs> and uh, and Shrek. To hate hey now. You got to watch Shrek a lot in order to start to hate Shrek. There comes a point with any film where it becomes a social experiment. If you see it too many times and I, I did I closed captioning, believe, it certainly happens. I truly believe that that's a good way to make yourself hate a decent movie is watch it every day for a week. Uh, so of the uh, let's say of the iconic 80s films, let, let me run through some of the most iconic 80s films and then tell me if you think it would be a good riff or no, not a good riff. Well, Mac and me. The Jonah generation of Mystery yep. Science Theater tackled that. Yep. And I, I think one of the reasons why we didn't do it is that we couldn't get the rights. All right. How about like something like Ishtar? No, you know, because Ishtar, I, I also think, is is a film that has gotten a bad rap. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, Ishtar. No, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. <laughs> I There's a movie that I am dreading. I mean, I'm dreading. I have physical dregs. I worked at a theater when we played it. And I just remember every time I would go in, it would make my skin crawl. 
Have you ever seen the Garbage Pail Kids movie? No, but, you know, that's the one that I was thinking of. Hobgoblins is a film we did that was sort of like little creatures that in, invade a small town. Yeah. Ghoulies and critters. Right. Yeah. Yes. Critters and goonies and all of those. Yeah. This was, yep. this was a far worse version of any of those. This is one of the movies that at Mystery Science Theater, the writing staff, the folks who were editing, everyone who came in contact with this film, it was like getting cancer. Um, we hated it so much. We came up with this, with this plot device where um, put cardboard cutouts of themselves in the theater to pretend that they were actually doing it, and the and the mad thing, you know, caught on because they couldn't watch another frame of the film because it was that bad. We've uh, hit a few walls. We we had to do this past year. We just did slapstick of another kind. Oh, oh wow! I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I mean, we're whole, talking we're talking to like one of the patron saints of bad movie analysis, and I'm telling and you, sir, I wouldn't wish it, it is, on you. Yeah. I wouldn't wish it on you. <laughs> Yeah, it's Madeline Kahn, Jerry Lewis, based on a Vonnegut novel. Yes, I have seen this film. Oh, directed by her manager. I didn't know it was called Slapstick of Another Kind. I thought it was just called Slapstick. And it's well, one of the oh. few where it really kind of broke me. I, I got there and I was like, I don't want to do the show anymore. Like, this is, you realize how off the rails giant filmmaking can go and could go. It's interesting. And, is comedy harder to make fun of? Oh, yeah, by uh, uh, an order of magnitude. Out-and-out comedy, especially a failed comedy, it's really difficult to make fun of somebody else's jokes. Yeah. Uh, it's why we bucked against actually doing films like, even like winking satires, like, you know, I, I can't even call Sharknado a satire. I can just call it a bloody stool. You, you need sincerity or an earnest, you need an honest attempt for there to be something to find a foothold in, right? You, you either need people who care a whole lot and yet didn't have the skills to do it, or you need people who didn't care at all. Um, you have devoured film. You're, you're a guy who strikes me, just when you read your work or when you listen to the references you make, you have uh, seeped yourself in pop culture. You've seen so much. And it is the jokes about the obscure that really make me, like you guys are the only people that I could imagine making jokes about films like Birdie or something, where the idea that you could make references to something like that is liberating because you realize... Yeah, you can make a joke for four people in the room as long as it's a really funny joke. You know, it's it's the confidence in your material. It's the confidence in what you know. And it, it sort of it, it at least gives people touchstones on what your perspective on the world is. If if they know that you're actually a fan of, you know, Wings of Desire or Atomic Cafe or um, there'd be four or five references I, I, or I wouldn't get or only half get. And then you'd make a reference to uh, Brazil or a Gilliam film. And I'd go. They're my, that's my guy. These are my guys. Now I get it. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. And that's, and that's always, that was our orientation. It's what we, it would use what we'd like in order to reflect what it is that we weren't liking when what we saw. You know, I remember Frank Conniff and Frank actually, he ended up, when he came on, he ended up taking the mantle pre-screening all of the films we did. So, and he oh. loved it. You know, I, I don't want to uh, tell any tales out of school, but I have a suspicion that Frank Conniff is a very funny man in person. Frank Conniff is a very funny man, and he's a very sweet man. The weird thing is he has not aged a day. He made a reference that we kept, even though he said, okay, we'll send it up the flagpole. Anna Kisselgoff, who was the dance critic for the New York Times, which he read regularly. That's so great. <laughs> what? It's another reason that I've always taken umbrage at the idea that you guys in, in any way dislike or are harming movies. It's... Listen to the the breadth of what they reference and what they talk about. 
you're you're dropping so much of this in. And I, I do think it becomes for for people that were the same age as you guys or of the same generation as you, it's identifiable, but it becomes aspirational for younger viewers. I've passed Misty on to my kids and they love it first as a puppet show. And just as the characters, they didn't get anything when we started watching it. And little by little, it's all filling in. Well, that's gratifying to hear because, you know, when I was a kid, Jay Ward was one of my heroes, actually became one of my heroes because I knew that Jay Ward at the time, I knew that half the jokes in, you know, like Rocky and Bullwinkle were going over my head in front of the TV and my parents are on the floor. Uh, one thing I would love to ask you, Kevin, is as, as iconic and popular as Mystery Science Theater was with fans, there are some that would say that the show inspired, let's say, a half a generation of wise asses, mostly boys, who would go to movies and think, well, th those guys on that show were funny doing this, so therefore, I must be funny doing this. What, what do you say uh, to those people who would ape your shtick in a public forum? I would say stop it immediately and never <laughs> do it again. People are paying money to see that film. You shut the fuck up or you get out of the theater. I have to tell one quick story out of school in response to that. I got one time in my life, very lucky, I was invited by a friend to go to dinner and to go to a movie, and when I showed up, Frank Conniff was his guest. And I was like, oh, my God, Frank. And I was delighted to get to meet him. TV's Frank? TV's Frank went to dinner with us. And then we went to the Egyptian to see a screening of Inframan. And before the screening, uh, Dennis Bartok came out and made a big introduction about this is a once in a lifetime screening of this print. We got it from an Australian collector. It is a pristine 35 millimeter print. This is a real experience. Get ready. The movie begins about halfway through. There is a film melt. Oh, and in the darkness, Frank very clearly and very quietly in a perfect Kiwi accent said, sure, I'm glad I sent my print to America. And that was it. The entire theater went down. <laughs> if anybody was allowed to do it in that moment, it was him. And it was perfect. <laughs> and that's, that's certainly an allowable moment. It's true. You guys must have had so much fun. I feel like uh, I've led a charmed life and for that very reason is that I got to work with these amazing and still do work with these amazingly talented people that uh, that have a particular skill that we have honed into something that a lot of people can share. And yet that we share sort of an interest intimacy about it because we're, we're the guys in the in the front trench, uh, you know, who go over the line and and take the bullets for everybody. <laughs> and uh, and so we have this camaraderie to this day with all of those folks in, in what we did and what we, you know, a lot of us still do. As you are went through the 80s, were there films that, especially, like I mentioned, Birdie was a movie that, that I love that we just got to talk about again. There are little movies that you hold on to that I yeah. think are the ones that really are this your our, favorites. This is our um, favorite question. I love Birdie. Absolutely. Birdie was just so weird and unconventional and shot, you know, in such a dramatic way for such, you know, and it all comes down to, it's amazing. It all leads to a punchline. And wonderful. I, I'm the it's same wonderful. way that that punchline when you get there is such a bracing surprise because nobody does that. <laughs> nobody builds a movie like that for that kind of an out. And it's yeah, you never forget it. Nicolas Cage when he actually had control. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just adore Nicolas Cage, and I think that guys of our approximate age have seen Cage from the very beginning, now in knee-deep in the VOD era, and a lot of those films aren't so good, but... No, uh, he's working for a living. 
what are some of the movies that, that you've carried around? Because part of the reason we wanted to do the show was an antidote to people only talking about the big 50 movies John, from the 80s. Dude, it's all about Ghostbusters, man. That's it. Yeah. I love John Sayles. I, I love Rudder from, from Another Planet, and I love Matewan, but I also love The Howling. Nice. Yes. Because um, The Howling is The Howling is a winking tribute to a certain type of movie. He was one of great at genre at writing that sort of exploitation thing where he knew that the characters had to be just interesting enough and quirky enough to keep you engaged between the alligator attacks. And, and never, his, he his, had a his, knack for it. I like that you mentioned Brother from Another Planet. I like him in that movie. I love his performance in that. Yes, it's perfect. It is. And I think he really I think he wrote the part for himself. He's so good. And David Strathairn, just the idea of them as alien tough guys and how he shoots it is hilarious. I was in graduate school at that point and uh, doing a lot of it wasn't just a film program, but film was part of my program. I started watching Jim Jarmusch for the first time. And uh, wow. I was used to watching movies the way that everyone was used to watching movies, and I was not used to watching what they, I mean, they weren't even called indies at the time. Actually, I think at the time, Jim Jarmusch was probably considered an experimental filmmaker, you know, like Stranger Than Paradise. I mean, anyone who was raised <laughs> in action films, who the fuck would sit down and watch that thing all the way through? Nothing happens in the damn film. For me, the way cable worked is HBO, you could count on it being big movie studio stuff. But each of the channels, you could identify by, like, what kind of weird little stuff they would show. Cinemax was really good for some of that stuff early on. And mm-hmm. that's where I that's where I saw Stranger Than Paradise. Well, yeah. What are some of your uh, buried treasures, underrated, you know, favorites? Uh, in, uh, so Sales, Jarmish, uh, Bill Forsyth. Oh, yes. We just did Comfort and Joy. Yeah. Oh, I actually bought myself a region-free DVD just so I could have a copy of the thing. I watch it every Christmas. It's beautiful. I like Local Hero like an eyelash more. but And I didn't realize Comfort and Joy was a Christmas movie until I was watching it for the show, and it happened to be over Christmas that I put it on, and I was like, this is delightful. Oh, my God, thank you. Now, Local Hero remains on – I don't have a, a big – Everybody has a top five list and they're totally worthless, but, and everybody's top five list should keep changing all the time because yes. that's the way your mind and your memory and your experience works. But local hero has always been there. And I, that's one film I can watch many, many times and, and realize how it was an inspiration for a lot of other filmmakers to do fish out of water films, uh, in a modern time. And still nobody's come close to doing what happened in that film. And Bill Forsyth being a, de- a severe depressive as he has been or as he was, uh, was really uncanny in capturing that feeling of depression. I think it's infinitely harder to write a film like that than it is to write like the hangover, which is that just town feels so real in local hero. And yeah, you, you get the sense that each and every one of those characters has a life that began outside of that frame which isn't always the case. So often in movies, you know that the character exists literally to say something to this character and then do nothing else ever. But yep. he was as good at beautiful losers as, as anybody I have ever uh, encountered. So, well, and one of my very favorite Reynolds performances was his uh, in Breaking In. And that movie, I can't wait to get to again because I don't think anybody remembers it. Drew, I don't remember one frame of Breaking In, but I remember seeing it on VHS and feeling that warm, satisfied feeling. Not just I liked it, but like, oh. 
That's yeah, big, no, it's you know? a great Reynolds performance, and Jamasco is a real treat in it. Like yeah. he's, oh, okay, Casey Jamasco should probably be doing bigger things. Yeah, absolutely. It's one a film that could grow on you if you watched it a few times over the course of a few years. He makes shaggy movies, and I don't, I don't mind that. I like kind of amiable shaggy films that you just like spending time with those people. And now housekeeping that falls into your uh, your yep. world too, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. And that's one of the lost ones. That's one of the ones that barely got a studio release. And I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I had a crush on Christine Lati before I saw that film, and it just got bigger when when I saw that film. Okay, one more filmmaker that uh, that I loved because of context was Prince. I, I we just talked about Purple Rain. It, for me, that was because I'm a little younger than you. So '84, I was 14. Prince felt like a broadside shot to everything my parents held dear in pop culture. And I fucking loved it. Like that was sorry for the pun, but it was revolutionary. Like it really felt like pop is changing. This is for me. This is the future. And I fell for Prince hook, line and sinker that summer. Well, I think it was, I think it was because it was a lot of white people's introduction to black music in a way that they'd never heard it before. At a time when, you know, hip hop was just starting to confuse the culture in a way that white people mm-hmm. didn't know what kind of roadmap they had for each other. And and Prince didn't care. He did R&B from the time he started and he kept doing it. But he did it in a way that was, I, I, you know, he was like Stevie Wonder. He took this music to another level and and he had a sense of self that was unlike any performer at the time. You know, he was the, the crafter of his own persona, and he was audacious enough to make a movie essentially about himself. And it happened in Minnesota. It didn't happen in Detroit or D.C. or And it feeds back into that local thing that I was saying, because it made Minneapolis feel like this Oz, this musical Oz that was all so wait, his. Purple Rain is like Minneapolis's Rocky? I think that's a, a great way to put it, and it was. Okay. and. Prince was right about one thing, and that's that Minneapolis, at least, you know, that and also that corner of Minneapolis where First Avenue and 7th Street was, was a true, its own sort of Motown. It was a hotbed of a certain type of music that was exciting and really fun to go see and see performed. It was it was the first film, I think I ended up knowing so many of the local crew who worked on it, who loved working on it, even though it was really hard and they were on a really low budget. To know the people who made a film that had that sort of universal appeal, it was, was, it was very cool. What about Under the Cherry Moon? Eh, not so much. Okay. <laughs> it brings us full circle to Bloodhook, which is a terrible movie. Tell us, how did you uh, get involved? What did you do on that film exactly? And uh, I remember seeing it way, way back in the day and not realizing it was comedy horror and liking it. Hey, okay, well, sure. The genesis of the film was... Uh, my pal Jim Mallon, who was working uh, in Madison and was the head of the Pale and Shovel Party, which was the student government in Madison, had always he, he did a comedy series on local cable sh- network, and he wanted to make a movie, and he wanted to make a comedy movie, and he had some friends who were some writers, and they said, I got a great idea for a comedy horror movie about a crazed bait shop fisherman who lives in northern Wisconsin who chops <laughs> people up. So he can feed his minnows so that they get really big and so that he can catch the biggest muskies in the lake. And uh, the film was originally called Musky Madness, and uh, which is a better title, I think. The specificity of that is what is so good. Is Bloodhook, is it readily available? Uh, probably. I don't, I don't know if it's on Netflix. I haven't looked for it. Okay. But, uh, if not, somebody should look into doing a full bore special edition of Bloodhook. 
Well, yeah, somebody should. It was, I'll tell you what, it's like Jiffy Pop. It was actually more fun to make than it is to eat. It was, <laughs> um, what was it? Martin Mull said that Hollywood is like uh, high school with money. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't have much money, but we sure had fun. We were six, ended up being seven weeks when we did reshoots in this resort area, Hayward, Wisconsin, up in northern Wisconsin. Very few of us had ever had any experience making a feature film. Uh, the director of photography who started with the film might have been the only person who had seen his way all the way through a feature film, and he got fired after the second week <laughs> because he was a total asshole. And so the rest of us were this the news crew and documentary crew from um, WHA, which was the public uh, TV station in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was like the best summer vacation ever. I have these fond memories of Spider Lake in northern Wisconsin, we had strung these cables across to, I don't know if you know what an HMI light is, but an HMI light is a very high voltage, very high powered light that you can use to light night scenes in a way that you can see everything, but it still looks like night. Like 25 amps and 600 volts that we have strung across from a dock to a raft. And I'm standing on that raft with this, <laughs> with this light. And I come to the realization while we're focusing it, if this thing gets wet at all, I'm going to die on the spot. <laughs> And uh, that was sort of how the whole thing went. It was so seat of the pants, and it was so much fun. It was a total maker's orgy. We just we were making everything up as we went along, and it was as low rent as a low-budget film could get. I've never had a more fun summer in my life. I can only assume that when you're writing and performing Mystery Science Theater, you have flashbacks to working on a film like Bloodhook going, this guy's... Did the best they could, damn it. You know how these choices get made. You get it. It took us a while at Mystery Science Theater because we just write this scene that seemed funny to us, but we didn't realize at the time how much it was going to kill our scenery staff, our special effects uh, staff, which were like, the total was three people for the whole damn thing. So they would have a, a really long week if we wrote in something like, Mike Nelson has destroyed another planet, so he's called to an intergalactic court. (laughs) to be tried for crimes against the universe. And uh, Bobo is going to be dressed up like he's in Inherit the Wind. And so suddenly these guys have to come up with an entirely new set. So we sort of would constantly kill our scenery and effects crew. And I think that's the kind of thing that happens on low-budget films is that the, the ideas are very lofty and big. But when it comes to the realization of these things, you realize you only have so many toys to play with. I think that's the other thing is I don't think people realize that in, in essence, yeah, you guys are making a low budget film every week while you're doing the show. It's one of those pieces of the puzzle that I think a lot of people overlook is it's not like you aren't also producing well, a two hour piece of entertainment on this incredible timetable that somehow has to work and hold together. Uh, when we first started, we were doing a show every six days. Good Lord. We ended up stretching that out generally to be able to do it like nine days um, to do the whole show. And it's really sort of like the reality of what we needed to do dictated the look of what we did. And so we just reveled in that. It was a reason why it was a single camera. You know, you look at the host segments, there's rarely an edit in the host segment except from one set to the other. Yeah. And all the effects were done in camera. And it called for us to do a sort of creativity inventiveness that was starting to dwindle at the time when digital effects were coming in and you've seen a lot of these you know horrid films that have really bad special effects uh and we decided to do them all either you know by set making 
uh, or through the lens and and nothing the only chroma key was the silhouette and the door sequence and that was it everything else was all handmade and shot through the lens all right i want you to tell our listeners if they want to create their own tom servo how to do so in three easy steps <laughs> uh, go online spend money <laughs> buy a glue gun one of the things that I love about uh, sort of the rise of the Coen brothers, and we're just getting the blood simple, is, again, that regional flavor. Were the Coen brothers um, inspirational in terms of Minnesota, in terms of that area, seeing those guys with their voice intact manage to become who they were? Did that also entitle you guys or make you guys think we can we can do the show we're doing and it'll find its audience? Oh, definitely. And uh, I think finally, when, you know, when the Coen brothers made Fargo, it really drove home that, they, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter where the film is shot or where the film is based. You can you can universalize anything. You know, it was it was really funny. When we first started Mystery Science Theater, they saw what we'd done and they said, great. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you build our sets in our in our studio in New York, and you're going to come out every weekend and shoot the show, and then you can go back and write it, and then you can come out the next weekend and shoot the show. And we all collectively said, no, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to keep <laughs> this handmade in Minnesota because it's not going to be what you want. What you're asking for, you're not going to get if you have us fly out to New York because – we're going it's to be not, limited. It's literally not the same thing. It's like you hire a chef and then immediately tell the chef, all right, well, only use one hand. And here's this cookbook. Yeah, because yeah, no. you, you, work, you work for me now, so use this cookbook and only use one hand. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and also use our kitchen, which is very limited in its resources. So we could do we, – we knew what we needed and we could do everything we wanted and we could do it on our schedule and still meet their deadlines – and so, so why, why make it more expensive? Why, you know, the thing is, it's, it's cheap by intention. Let's keep it cheap. And actually, we were very um, fortunate in having uh, Joel's uh, agent, Rick Lead was his name. He worked at UTA, United, uh, whatever. He was a pit bull. He was just, if you, if you weren't his client, he was a monster. He was just, he was a horror <laughs> show. You did not want to be in a, move, in, a, in a meeting with this guy. But he protected us. He actually went through that and said, let these guys do what they do, where they're doing it, and you're going to be satisfied with what they get. And, and it worked out to be true. Before we wrap up, are there any uh, other films or filmmakers who jump out uh, who you really want to make sure we mention before we move on from the 80s? Because it seems like the filmmakers that were important to you were the guys that were really developing individual voices at, kind of outside the system. Jarmusch was the same way for me, like just seeing – Stranger than Paradise, and not even knowing if I was supposed to be laughing or not laughing. Well, exactly. Yeah. Like there was no cue. Nobody told me if it was funny. I just one it's, night, yeah, you know, started it, laughing. Jarmish reminds me of when they stopped putting the laugh track on sitcoms. And Vendors was another uh, filmmaker I was going to mention. Yeah. Along with uh, Richard Linklater, uh, Slacker was another film that sort of changed my uh, perception. And, and Dazed and Confused is a film I, I can, again, it's a film I can watch annually. That film is so spot on in terms of that feeling of that first night when you realize, oh, my God, my parents don't know what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen a film that better captures that. Oh, sure. I'll try that. Sure. I guess tonight's the night. Here we go. Well, it, you know, my favorite George Lucas film is still American Graffiti. And yeah. and he he did more mythologizing in that film than Linklater made it all seem ordinary. Like this is what we're all doing. Whereas 
you know, the stuff that George Lucas put in was these icons. And so it was it was a different sort of film. It was more of a grail quest. I think he always painted he always painted in big broad strokes. Like he always saw it as a little more romantic and a little bit more of a movie. There was a generation of guys who started making movies about movies and about the way they'd grown up on movies. It's another reason that your show felt inevitable. Like there was somebody was going to do something that was this kind of direct dialogue with films. And you guys just crystallized it so perfectly and did it in a way that was inviting and funny and a little bit like a kid's show, but not a kid's show. We were already kind of making movies about movies, and then you guys took it that one step further, I feel like. Well, thank you. Wow. Did, did you guys ever have kind of like, you know, that moment in the movie where, like, in that thing you do where they hear the song on the radio? Did you guys ever just show up at work one day and realize, hey, we have fans all over the country and maybe all over the world? Yeah, when we started getting emails from Europe, I think that was probably, I mean, uh, <laughs> not emails, actual fan mail. I mean, you know, through the post. We said, wow, what's going on here? Yeah, that was kind of wild to to realize that. And we got a letter from the mayor of Brooklyn who declared a Mystery Science Theater Day, and we had no idea. Well, it was still early pre-internet days where I feel like it was the way things used to happen where you had a buddy who would tell you about it, and then he would give you a videotape. You guys really were one of the last things that happened that way where there was a physical component to the, the sharing and the growth of that audience. Well, yeah, and the idea of a cult following for something has changed since since we became a cult following, I guess. And it was sort of cool. I mean, to this day, we have totally known that we're fringe dwellers and that it'll always be that way no matter what kind of iteration it takes. Because there, there's all, in all of the people who consume media, there's a very small sector of the population that like what we do. But they like it consistently, and we're grateful that we continue to try to serve them in a way that also serves us and that they continue to like it. I can attest that Mystery Science Theater fans are ridiculously loyal because I have been a fan for 30 years, and uh, I just want to thank you for taking an hour out of your night and joining uh, two fellow movie nerds to just uh, – we could probably do this for another two hours just, just on <laughs> – I do hope that uh, people continue to – I think share the show as a tradition. I, I think watching the way my kids grew up with it, uh, I think it will age beautifully, man. Do you have anything coming out? Anything uh, you could promote? Any new shows, podcasts, books, fortune cookies? What Anything. We're in the middle of a Kickstarter, which has already been funded. But uh, the more we get, the more we can do. And that's always been the way with our Kickstarters is that I love doing the live shows. It's, it's always one of the highlights of our years that we take Rift Tracks and we take it to the uh, Belcourt Theater in Nashville and we do a, a show there live on stage, and we simulcast it uh, all over the country, like 700 theaters. And it's a high wire act, and it's you know it's the kind of thing that uh, generally, because we do it live, you start that baby going, and it's not going to stop until either it crashes or it ends. So it's always very exciting for us, and it seems to be <laughs> very popular with folks. And we love doing it, and we're doing three shows this year. And uh, uh, and we're looking forward to it. We're going to do Giant Spider Invasion. We're revisiting uh, that beautiful piece of, of work. No, that's actually. Oh, no. Yeah, that's Kingdom of the Spiders. My bad. Yeah. Giant Spider Invasion stars Alan Hale Jr. Oh, right. <laughs> Skipper. And we're doing I forget the name of it. It's a it's a horrible Casper Van Dien film. And it's only a year old. It was actually a Kickstarter funded film. 
And uh, we're doing Octoman, which is, I don't know if you've seen Octoman, oh. but damn, Octoman yeah. is a treat. It's like <laughs> the samurai cop of Rubber Monster film. Where can people go to read up on the event and support it? Rifftracks.com. Get all the information you need. R-I-F-F-T-R-A-X. Support Kevin, Kevin Murphy and his exploits. <laughs> A delight, sir. Thank you so much. And uh, we will talk very soon. Um, for our Patreon listeners, as always, uh, please spread the word. If you love the content you're getting, make sure more people uh, subscribe to the Patreon and we'll continue to do them. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>